Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. The act was a fraud, a fake, a pretense, a fiction, a sham. Uh, It wasn't really intended to levy a duty on molasses. It was intended to prohibit the importation of molasses into the American colonies. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Ken Shoemate discussing the Molasses Act of 1733 and how it played 30 years later in the origins of the American Revolution. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode is brought to you by West Home Publishing, publisher of The Battles of Connecticut Farms and Springfield, 1780, by Edward G. Lengel. Available now wherever books are sold. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. On today's episode, our guest is Ken Shoemate. He has a new series of articles on the Sugar Act, but not the Sugar Act you may think. Today he's going to be talking about the Molasses Act, known at the time as the Sugar Act, of 1733, and how that, I guess we can say, left a bad taste in the mouth of colonists that 30 years later would erupt in such ferocious ways Uh, as we saw, that will lead to the American Revolution. So sit back, relax, and enjoy our interview with Ken Shoemate. Ken Shoemate, thank you for joining us. Well, Brady, thank you for having me. Tell us about your background. Well, my story comes in two parts, before and after 2007. Uh, Up until 2007, my entire education and career was uh, science and engineering and mathematics, uh, almost exclusively the last uh, 20 years or so in the development of very large software systems like air traffic uh, control systems and things of that sort. But things get more interesting from a historical viewpoint after that. Uh, I retired from Hughes Aircraft Company, a then famous company that's now been uh, sold off for its pieces. Uh, but we used to be at the Fullest in California, just to set a geographical context that's just down the road from Disneyland. But in 2007, I retired, and I was able to indulge my long-term interest in the Supreme Court. Uh, and then that led me to Supreme Court decisions, which led me to the Constitution. And uh, I began to get interested in constitutional law, which interested me in the Constitution, which led me backward in time to the Articles of Confederation, which led me backward in time to the pre-revolutionary era. And then I finally got stuck on the uh, period of uh, 1763 to 1765, and that's been my main focus of research and eventually writing for the last 10 years. What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, usually when somebody starts reading about the revolution, the first thing they run into is the Stamp Act crisis. And so I read my way through that. But uh, as I did, I ran into the what I think of as the uh, Sugar Act crisis uh, preceding the Stamp Act, and uh, I found that very interesting. 
And so, for example, I searched for a book called The Sugarette. No luck, no book. Even the scholarly literature, there was any articles that were entitled The Sugarette, and that talked about it. So I wound up uh, writing an article along those lines, submitting it to the uh, Journal of the American Revolution, and it's called The Sugar Act, A Brief History. And I kept researching, and that led me to other things. So I uh, wrote another article for the journal called The Molasses Act of 1733. Actually, I called it in the article The Molasses Act, A Brief History. And uh, I should explain here that the there's a duality in names here. The Molasses Act, as it's commonly called now, was at the time called the Sugar Act. And so that's the Sugar Act of 1733. And uh, it dealt with the uh, tax on molasses as being the primary component. And over the years, the tax on molasses went from six cents originally, and then the Sugar Act of 1764 put it down to three pence, and then, just introduced another name, the Sugar Act of 1766 reduced the molasses duty to a single penny. Well, finally, all that research led me to investigate a series of colonial essays that were very early, that were uh, after the Molasses Act, but before the Sugar Act of 1764, and they were dealing with the period when the British were going to renew the Sugar Act of 1733, and there were a number of colonial protests against it. Uh, I found these very interesting. I found them sort of underreported in the literature, so I decided to write what turned out to be a long article. Uh, the editors of the Journal of American Revolution decided to present the article in part and did a terrific job of making the partitions, and they added headlines and subtitles to each of the parts, but still with the overall title being Reasons Against the Renewal of the Sugar Act. You mentioned the Molasses Act already. Could you talk about the importance of molasses to Britain's North American colonies? Uh, sure. The, uh, the issue there is that the Americans needed molasses so that they could distill it in the rum as a trade product. You see, the molasses itself wasn't very important. But distilling it in the rum was a very important industry in the colonies. But the most important issue, and this is what will come up over and over again, that they needed rum as a trade product in order to obtain hard currency, that is gold, silver, British coins, uh, in a word, uh, species. They needed the species in order to purchase British manufactured products that they otherwise could not obtain. Well, this raises the issue of what was so special. Uh, it was the northern colonies that had to do that, and by northern colonies I specifically mean Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York. And what was special about these colonies so badly needing molasses that are still in the rum is that they had no products that they developed that were necessary for England. England wasn't interested in the beasts and the fish and the horses and the other provisions that were in surplus in the northern colonies uh, because the climate and everything was similar. There's a reason that New England is named, the, they have a very similar characteristics to old England, so the northern colonies couldn't trade anything to England uh, as the southern colonies could, uh, Virginia, Maryland, North and South Carolina. Uh, 
So they needed to get the specie in order to get the money in order to buy the British manufactured product. Uh, and so this was important, you can tell, to England also, because uh, it was uh, part of the point of having colonies so that the colonies would purchase the British manufactured product. What was the Molasses Act of 1733? What were the provisions? What did it actually functionally look like? Yes, this is, this is the crux of the story because it's about re, uh, the protest against the renewal of the Molasses Act of 1733, or the, what I'll refer to as the Sugar Act of 1733 because that's what they called it at the time. The Act laid import duties on foreign sugar, rum, and molasses. And this was duties that were laid on uh, foreign uh, products, uh, specifically from the Sugar Islands in the West Indies. And these were primarily French, so sometimes they'll use French and foreign as sort of interchangeably. The issue is that there was lots of molasses in the Sugar Islands because it's an inescapable byproduct of the manufacture of sugar. It turns out that there were we can characterize there were two kinds of colonies. There were the British colonies and there were the French colonies. The French were not allowed by law to distill their molasses into rum. The British colonies had a lucrative business of distilling their molasses into rum that they then sold to uh, Great Britain. This left uh, the Americans who wanted this molasses having to deal with the with the foreign colonies, in order to get the uh, molasses, they provided the foreign colonies with provisions that were needed for the sustenance of these single crop plantations. And so they provided horses, beef, fish, uh, most importantly or very importantly, lumber uh, to build spades in order to be able to pack the sugar. Uh, and uh, so the business went along fine for a while, except that in the early 18th century, the British colonies were in dire competition with the French, and they were losing the battle. The French colonies were simply more productive. And so the British asked the, uh, the, the British colonies, asked the British officials to stop the, uh, stop the trade. Uh, and so here, so here we come to the Molasses Act. The point of the Molasses Act, Sugar Act of 1733, was to prevent the trade uh, between the North American colonies and the French. It laid a duty, I'm going to focus on molasses, since that was the most important one. They laid a duty of six tenths per gallon on the foreign molasses. The Americans said, uh, that's not fair. That's a prohibitive duty. We cannot pay that and make it a product. And so there was a battle in Parliament for a while, a, a blizzard of pamphlets, uh, in which the British colonies wanted to prohibit the Americans from providing the necessary provisions, and the Americans said we have to do so in order to get the rum. But in 1733, the Molasses Act, or the Sugar Act of 1733, was passed, and the title of the act is an act for the better securing and encouraging the trade of its majesty's sugar colonies in America. And it was enacted for only five years. But over the next 30 years, Parliament kept reenacting it. And it was up for renew again 
uh, in uh, 1764, that's what led to the point of the protest. Now, there's something real important about this, that the act was a fraud, a fake, a pretense, a fiction, a sham. Uh, it wasn't really intended to levy a duty on molasses. It was intended to prohibit the importation of molasses into the American colonies. And the connection between molasses and horses, lumber, fish, and so on was so strong that if the Americans could not import molasses, they could not export these other products, and so the British would have their uh, mission accomplished. Now, everybody knew that this was a fraud. Everybody knew that this was uh, not really a duty, but really a prohibition. And the reason it was imposed as a duty is that the British first tried, the British sugar planters first tried in 1731 to have a prohibition on the importation of molasses and the export of the other goods. Uh, and this was passed in the House of Commons. But the House of Lords took a look at it and they said, no, this is going to be bad for trade. And so they killed it. They failed to consent. In 1732, the British sugar planters lobbied Parliament to once again do the same thing. Again, the House of Commons passed it, and the House of Lords killed it. So it was in 1733 that the sugar planters and their friends in Parliament said, ah, what we're going to do is we're going to put a duty on molasses that is so high that the Americans will uh, not import it and they will not export the products. But by putting a duty on it, we are going to pretend that this is a revenue act, a money bill before uh, Parliament. And the House of Lords was not supposed to have very much to do with revenue bills, with taxation. And so the House of Commons in 1733 uh, passed this sham of a bill with uh, all these duties, and they pretended with a straight face. Some of reading some of the debates in Parliament are really a, a farce. It would make a nice Broadway play if somebody came to that. But uh, the House of Commons passed it and formally decreed that this was a revenue act. The House of Commons then was, by long tradition, able to do nothing but sort of shrug their shoulders and consent. And so this became into law. But uh, over time, uh, it was an ambiguous act. Uh, I mean, everybody knew it was a sham. But over time, this sort of got lost. And over the years, people weren't sure whether this was really just an act of prohibition or if it was a revenue act. Uh, and this, this ambiguity will come up again later in our story. But the last thing about this act is that over the next 30 years, uh, although it sounds to be a terrible burden for the Americans, uh, it didn't do anything to uh, disturb the trade uh, because the Americans simply smuggled the molasses they needed at the cost of about a penny a gallon. And the British didn't do anything about it because they really didn't care. It was a, a problem for the West Indies. And this was during a long period that was later called wise and salutary neglect. Uh, famous phrase uh, attributed uh, uh, to William uh, uh, Pitt. Then 
during the during this period, uh, because of the wise and salutary neglect, the Americans just went on their way. Parliament kept on renewing the act, uh, and uh, there it went uh, until we came up to uh, 1763. What would drive the need 30 years later for a renewal of the Sugar Act? Well, this was the end of the Seven Years' War. And um, Britain was anxious to get get the end of this war, and uh, the British taxpayers were really overburdened. There was a huge uh, British national debt, taxes were high, uh, and because of the territory acquired from France and Spain, uh, namely the eastern watershed of the Mississippi, Canada, and Florida, uh, the British felt that they needed to maintain a large army in North America, and they would determine that the Americans would help pay for that. And it turned out that the most uh, easy way to do it immediately was to enforce the laws of trade and specifically to enforce the about-to-be-renewed Sugar Act. And so the Americans then perceived, they, they got wind of this, uh, that the act was going to be renewed and enforced, and they came up with the uh, protests. I should say that there's a couple of things that went on that might have alerted the Americans to a broader problem. Uh, it turned out that 1763-1764 was a very important period in which the British actually changed their colonial policy towards uh, America. They decided that instead of simply regulating the trade, they were going to draw revenue. And the very first Thing that was indicating to the Americans that something was going on was a letter of July 9th, 1763, from Secretary of State Egremont. Uh, Governor Bernard of Massachusetts got this in December, and the, the letter was, in, on the one hand, it sounded like same old, same old stuff they'd heard, so, oh, we're going to enforce the act, you, you need to go along with it. But there were a couple of phrases. Uh, in which uh, Egremont really emphasized the importance of the king about the improvement of the public revenue uh, and uh, really emphasized that the king wanted you to do this. Well, Bernard responded, uh, everything's okay here, no, no problems in my colony, uh, and everything's just fine. The letter from Egremont was followed up in October with a letter from the Board of Trade that further emphasized uh, that uh, the governors were all going to have to enforce the uh, act of trade. And Bernard once again said that uh, uh, everything is okay in uh, my area. Uh, but he did go on to say that there was a question, uh, and he, he raised this goes back to the ambiguity of the Sugar Act of 1733. Uh, he said that the question seems to be, this is quoting Bernard now, whether it should be an act of prohibition or an act of revenue. And he went on to say, it is, in my opinion, a false state of this question to consider it as a contest between the West Indies and North America. It is really a contest between the West Indies and Great Britain. The trade of North America is really the trade of Great Britain. And then here's the phrase that serves as the subtitle for part one. He says that if you are to enforce this act, America will suffer for a time only, but the loss to Great Britain 
will be irretrievable. He felt that America would be able to cope with it, but that British trade would be irreparably harmed. Who were the most vocal opponents of the act in the American colonies, and what were their arguments? Well, none of the uh, famous founders were really involved in this. Uh, The most famous single individual was uh, Governor Hopkins of Rhode Island, uh, who who wrote that, uh, he emphasized one thing that I mentioned earlier. Uh, This is a a brief quote from uh, his his, uh, protest. said that regarding the Northern colonies, their situation and circumstances are such as to be obliged to take off and consume great quantities of British manufacturers. And he goes on that uh, we have nothing that we can trade to Great Britain in order to pay for this stuff, and that's why they needed the rum in order to be able to turn that uh, into cash. Uh, so the, the only thing I can really say about who made the protest was the uh, four colonies that I mentioned earlier, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, Connecticut, and New York. And I can, I guess I can summarize the reasons. Of, of best of all, uh, I'm going to give you this. This will be the only really long quote, but I, I would like to quote the, the closing paragraph of the Boston pamphlet because it summarizes it. They say, upon the whole, it is evident that the renewal of this act will be followed by the most pernicious consequences. Instead of increasing, it will sink the king's revenue. It will weaken the naval power of Great Britain by destroying our fishery, which was a very important industry at that time. And the fishery was that great nursery of British seamen. And at the same time, it will strengthen the marine of France by encouraging the French fishery. And this was during a period of uh, terrible conflict, uh, even after the peace of Paris of 1763, there were still remaining issues between France and Great Britain. And so he goes on that the uh, enforcement of the act will be highly prejudicial to the trade of Britain because the Americans can't buy their manufacturers and destructive to that of the colonies. And he goes on to say, or the uh, pamphlet, pamphlet goes on to say, it is plain that our islands that is the Sugar Islands, as opposed to the Foreign Islands, our islands are able neither to supply us with what we want from them, nor to take from us what lumber and fish we are obliged to export. And uh, and, and that was the uh, baseline problem, that the uh, Americans had so much stuff to export, and the British colonies were relatively small compared to all the foreign colonies, and they couldn't import the material. So... Uh, That's a long story about why the Americans wanted to protest the renewal of the act. How do these debates help us understand the American Revolution more clearly? Well, this is a big issue. And the article that I wrote was already so long that uh, I didn't allocate any more space to this. I really wanted to describe uh, what the protests were. So I just uh, address it in a, in a couple of pages. But it's really a very important issue. And in fact, I'd say it's one, not the, but it's one of the central aspects of the revolutionary dialogue that went on for a long time, that the British believed that Parliament could impose customs duties on import for the purpose of revenue. Now, some of the Americans thought that at first also. It was a very confusing issue. 
because the British unquestionably uh, have the right to impose uh, uh, prohibitions on import. They control trade. And uh, ever since uh, 1650, uh, particularly 1660 and 1673, they passed a number of acts that control trade uh, and impose duties. But the duties were all perceived not as being intended for revenue, but rather being intended uh, to control trade. But the, the issue is that the, uh, the British believe. Now, the Sugar Act of 1733 and the debate uh, fostered that belief. I mentioned that it was ambiguous, uh, and the protests, uh, in fact, did only address the uh, economic consequences. They never made any uh, protest against the constitutional issue. And one of the best explanations for that uh, was given uh, later in 1764 by James Otis. Uh, here comes another quote, but this, this is the famous one. James Otis wrote that the Sugar Act of 1733 imposes a duty, a customs duty, although it has been said to be designed for a prohibition. Uh, and he goes on that it's likely that it was, in fact, designed for a prohibition. And he says, it is a pity it had not been so expressed as a prohibition. And here's the key part. He says, there is not the least doubt of the just and equitable right of the Parliament to lay prohibitions throughout the dominions when they think the good of the whole requires it. So as long as the Sugar Act was perceived as a law of trade, as a prohibition, uh, the Americans really had nothing to complain about. But if it were perceived as the Revenue Act, there would be a constitutional argument. But in early, 1960, early 1764, uh, there was no perception that it was a Revenue Act, and therefore the Americans did not protest on a constitutional basis. Now, unfortunately, the British, uh, for the next large number of years, chose to take the viewpoint that the Sugar Act of 1733 was not a fraud, not a fake, not a sham, but that, in fact, it was a Revenue Act, and the Americans had agreed to that Revenue Act, and that uh, since the Americans agreed to that as a Revenue Act, then they were free to go ahead and uh, put in uh, other, uh, other Revenue Acts. And the, one of the famous retorts along these lines was by Thomas Watley in the regulations lately made, and which uh, was uh, over a 100-page pamphlet. But one of the long discussions is about the Sugar Act, and he talks about that the Americans, this is quote, had complained about the amount of the impositions, and they complained about the general policy, but, and here, here's sort of a famous quote, the right of making such a law has never been questioned. And that was specifically the point of the law was never questioned in the protest that the Americans made in early 1764 before the enactment of the Sugar Act. So, so there we have the British who are believing that, or at least they're, they're claiming to believe, uh, they're acting as though they believe, that the Americans are accepting of 
couple of duties for Revenue Act, and that led directly to the Sugar Act of 1764. Uh, it reduced the duty on molasses to three pence, but the Americans still thought that was prohibitive, and there became a whole series of later uh, complaints throughout 1764 about the uh, effect of the, of the Sugar Act, and it became confused because later in 1764, they were also complaining about the Stamp Act. But the Stamp Act, of course, was ultimately uh, repealed. But in 1767, Charles Townsend made it explicit that he was going to implement the Townsend, uh, Townsend duties. Uh, in fact, the, the, the famous uh, the second crisis of the American Revolution is now known as the Townsend Duties Crisis. And those duties came about explicitly, Townsend said so explicitly, because the Americans will not complain about acts that draw revenue as long as they're in the form of customs duties. Well, it turned out that that wasn't true. The Americans complained a lot, uh, and uh, this went on. The Americans complained about the tea uh, with famous consequences, and they Everything went on uh, for throughout the entire uh, conflict until finally, well, it went on, but uh, one of the important steps was that in 1774, the, the uh, Continental Congress uh, on October 14, 1774, called for the repeal of a number of acts that they thought were particularly atrocious. And the first named of those acts was the Sugar Act, of 1764. Uh, and so there's sort of an issue there that in a very important sense, the protests that the Americans made that are in the article I wrote that are in early 1764 failed of their purpose of preventing the uh, Act of 1764. But by understanding the protests that the Americans made in early, early 1764, we can better understand why the British thought uh, that the Americans were okay with customs duties, and this gives us some better insight to everything that happened over the next 10 years. Ken Shoemate, thank you for joining us. Okay, well, thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.